Good morning. It's great to see you guys today. Like Joanna said, my name's Elliot, and we are going to wrap up a series today where we prepared our hearts to worship Christ at Christmas. And we did that because in this season that's known for busyness and hyper-consuming and gift-giving and all the traditions, it's easy to just kind of fly through the season and overlook the important reason that December 25th is even a significant date on our calendars to begin with. And we often can kind of just move through the season and, and not remember the reality that God came to earth as a child, he grew to be a man who would give his life for us on the cross to solve the problem of our sin, and then he would rise from the grave proving that he can give life that death cannot defeat. And so often we just kind of come through this season and we go through it the way that we've always gone through it, and we come out the other side, and we didn't take time to pause and reflect on that reality. So we've spent the last four weeks stopping and considering, okay, is there a way that we can take Christmas back and remember the real reason, kind of remind our hearts that there's more to Christmas than just all the stuff going on around us? And so today what we're going to do is now that now that Christmas has passed, before we enter the new year and we get back into our routines of school and work and our hobbies and kind of chasing after whatever New Year's resolution we might come up with, before we get back into that, is there a counter plan that we can kind of continue as we go through the year? You know, we've focused on a counter plan for celebrating Christmas, but is there something we can do as we enter into the new year? And the reality is, is just because Christmas is in the rear view, Advent is not over. And that's because when Jesus left, he said something interesting to his followers. He said this in Matthew 24. He said, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. He promised to come back. So it's not the end of the story when he returned to heaven. He said, hey, I'm going to come back and I'm going to wrap up history. And just like his followers were living in Advent, waiting for that first Christmas, waiting for him to come, they were waiting and preparing themselves you and I are waiting and preparing ourselves to when he comes back and wraps up history. That was a promise that was given 2,000 years ago, and we can look at and say, okay, he's promised this. So now how can we prepare? So that's what we're going to kind of focus on this morning. Now that Christmas has passed, now what? Now what do we do with this counter plan that we've developed to celebrate Christmas? Is there some of that that applies to just how we go through our normal lives as we move through the year to to remember that life is more than just what's happening around us, the busyness and all the stuff we've got to do, and to focus on, okay, God's going to come back, eternity is real, Christ is going to wrap up history. Now what? Can we, what can we do to focus on that? Well, there's something that I think we can learn really important from a guy named Daniel. Now, Daniel, um, he wrote one of the books in the Bible, and in the book that he wrote, interestingly enough, he included some prophecy about the Messiah who had come to save the people that Jesus then later fulfilled when Jesus showed up, just giving more evidence to the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So Daniel wrote this book of the Bible. It's located in the Old Testament. Daniel lived around 600 years before Christ came. He spent most of his life in a city called Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq, and he, he climbed to be one of the most powerful men in the kingdom. Now, something that's surprising and really stands out in Daniel's life is he gained an incredible amount of success. And at the same time that he was getting all this success, he was very faithful to follow and serve God in an environment that was not favorable to people that believed in the God of the Bible. I mean, Babylon was a city that was hostile to God. It was a nation that was opposed to God and his ways. And Daniel, he wasn't there by choice. I mean, he didn't raise his hand and say, hey, I want to 
you know, I'm an Israelite, I want to move out of Israel and move into Babylon. He was taken as a captive, and he was forced to be trained and then serve in the king's court. So he wasn't there by choice. And then he he's serves in the government, and you can just imagine all the stuff going on around him. I mean, this is a this is a country they don't worship God, they don't follow God's ways, they don't they they actually are very opposed to it. So you can imagine there's there's temptation and there's distraction and there's this kind of this backbiting and competition and struggle for power going on around him. Somehow he doesn't get caught up in all of it. Somehow he he continues to move towards success and gain, gain more and more influence and continue to follow God without getting caught up in all the distractions that everybody else did. And so it just begs the question for you and I to ask as we read a book like that and study a guy's life like this, we just got to ask the question, how did he not get caught up in the chase of power and running after pleasures like everybody else around him did? How did he, how did he stay focused on God? How did he keep reminding, I mean, this was before Christ came on that first Christmas, so how did he keep reminding himself that, okay, God's going to fulfill his promises, the Messiah is going to come? How did he do that, and is there anything that we can learn from that? Well, I think there's a glimpse into how he was able to do this, and one of the stories that we're told about his life, and it's actually the story he's most famous for, it's the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Now, you might have heard about this story, but I'll kind of give you a brief recap of it so we can kind of catch us all up to speed. But in the middle of the story, there's kind of a, got, he, he, kind of, he kind of gives us a glimpse into, okay, I think this is how he was able to stay focused on God amidst everything that was happening. So the story of Daniel and the lion's den, how it goes, there had been two previous kings that Daniel had served under, and then a third king comes to power. When this third king comes to power, he was not a part of the royal bloodline. So when he comes to power, the previous king had been killed, this new king comes, he wasn't a part of the royal family, so he, he cleans house and he sets up a whole new government. I mean, you could imagine just the turmoil that would take place when a new king and a whole new administration, a whole new approach comes in and they just get rid of everybody. Now, surprisingly, Daniel is able to kind of retain his position, is actually given one of three administrator positions. So it was the king, Darius, and then under the king, there were three administrators who oversaw everything that happened in the land. And Daniel's one of these three guys. And because of his wisdom and his integrity, he just keeps growing in influence. And he, he keeps kind of moving up and gaining more influence and success. And so those other two administrators, they get really jealous. They want to get rid of him because he's a threat to their positions. So they go to the king and they kind of play on the king's vanity. And they get the king to pass a law that will make it illegal to worship God. So anybody that bows down or worships anything other than the king, they're playing on the king's vanity, They've, they're going to be killed, is this law that's passed. So the law is passed, and Daniel, he's been worshiping God his whole life. He's, I mean, that's the, the main identifier in his life. He's a follower of God, so he's going to continue to worship God. He gets caught worshiping God. He's sentenced to death. He's thrown into the lion's den, and God, miraculously, he intervenes, and he saves Daniel from being killed. That's the story. But in the middle of that story, we're told something. We're there's something going on in Daniel's life that we're told about that I think helps us understand, okay, how amidst all this stuff going on around him, how in the world is he going to stay focused on God amidst all the distractions, all the pleasures, all the struggle for power going on around him? This is what it says, Daniel 6. I want to focus on this today. It says this. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, that's the law making it illegal to worship God. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, there's a lot in just this one verse. There's a lot revealed 
that I think points to how he was able to stay focused on God. So I'm going to point a couple other things out. First thing it says, it says that he had windows that were open towards Jerusalem. So he's living in Babylon. He wasn't born in Babylon. He was born in Israel. He was taken as a captive to Babylon. Babylon would be in modern-day Iraq. So he couldn't even see Jerusalem. But for him, Jerusalem was a reminder of a place where God ruled, where God's way of life was the desired way of life. And so for him, looking the physical act of looking, opening the windows and looking out to Jerusalem was a way to remind his heart and kind of create a longing inside of him of life the way that God intended for it to be, life under God's rule. So he had this physical practice of opening the windows and looking out and just remembering, okay, I want to be in a place where God's in control. Another interesting thing it says, it says this was in his upper chamber. You know, that indicates that his view was unobstructed. I mean, this is a very successful guy. This isn't just some, you know, shack on the side of the road. I mean, he probably had an impressive house that he lived in. So he goes in, it's the upper chamber, he opens the windows. He, you know, there's an unobstructed view. The idea is he physically gets above all the hustle and the bustle of what's going on in the street below him. All the people chasing after different things and trying to get success and trying to get money and trying to get power, he kind of physically gets up above it. And again, he's kind of, it's almost like he's lifting his heart out of what's happening around him. And then as he prays, he's looking out to Jerusalem and it's kind of a physical act to remind his heart, kind of pull him up out of what's going on and remind his heart of, I want to be in a place where God rules. And this is pretty interesting stuff. Then it says that he did this three times a day. Now, if you kind of study and try to figure out, well, where did he, where did he come up with that number? Where did he come up with the frequency? There's, there's no command that tells us to pray three times a day. So where in the world would Daniel come up with this? Well, there's a couple different ideas, but one that, that really stood out to me and I think makes a lot of sense is when you understand the context that Daniel was born into. He was born in Israel, and when he was born, he was born in a period of revival in the country. What had happened is for hundreds of years, the people had walked away from God, they had rejected God, wanted nothing to do with God. So the, the nation began to enter into a state of decay, and terrible stuff was happening throughout the country. They actually didn't want anything to do with God so much that they just neglected to read the portion of the Bible that they had all together. They didn't even look at it. They, they actually lost it. They didn't have a record. The, kind of the first five books of the Bible is what they would refer to. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books. They lost it. They couldn't find it. And they didn't want anything to do with God. So the, the nation's in disrepair. It's in decay. It's falling apart. Other kingdoms are coming in and conquering them. Then this new king comes to power. The king's name is Josiah. Josiah comes to power, and he uncovers a lost record of God's law kind of those first five books of the Bible. He reads through it with some of his rulers, and they, they see, okay, this is how God wants us to live. These are the blessings that come when, when you do life God's way. These are the instructions for how we're supposed to follow him, and this is, this is what it looks like to be one of his worshipers. And they read through all this stuff, and they say, we want that in our lives. And we don't just want that in our lives. We want that for the kingdom. The kingdom's falling apart. We, we want God's blessing back on this kingdom. So there's this revival that takes place, this kind of renewed desire to follow God. So the first thing they do is they go into the temple, and they just completely clean house. There was worshiping of false idols and all these horrible practices going on, and they go in and they just clean out the temple and start to worship God again. And there was a specific routine, a daily routine that would happen in the, in the temple that the priests would carry out in their worship to God. This is the context that Daniel's born into before he's taken to Babylon. So I think that when he gets to Babylon, 
he's, he's in this context that's very hostile to God. They, they, don't, they don't follow God. They don't really want anything to do with the God of the Bible. So he's asking himself the question, okay, how am I going to stay focused on God in this place where it's not very friendly to be one of his followers? So I think what he did was he thought back on his childhood, and he remembered the practices that took place in the temple, kind of the daily routine, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take something similar and put it into my life. I'm going to take something that I saw happen in the temple, and so I'm going to do a similar thing in my context. So I think that's how he came up with three times a day. It's not a command. It's something he saw done in his youth, and then later in life he said, I need to do something similar. I need to, I need to build a rhythm and a routine and a habit into my life. Otherwise, I'm not going to stay focused on God. So I think that's where he got the three times a day. And it says that he did this as he had done previously. So that's indicating this isn't like, this isn't a one-time thing. It wasn't like the law was passed, it's illegal to follow God, and then suddenly he says, okay, today I'm going to start praying three times. This is, he had been doing this for probably his entire life. Probably since he arrived in Babylon, he built this practice and this routine into his life. And I think that this is really important for us, because for us, as we, as we look to the future and we consider the fact that, okay, God is going to come back, and we're preparing and waiting for his return, and then we're living in a world where it's so easy to get distracted and live for other things. Okay, how do we stay focused on God? And I think there's a lot we can learn from his, from Daniel's practices that we can put in our life, rhythms and routines, daily, weekly, monthly, you name it, that help our hearts remember, okay, there's more going on than what's going on around me. That help us remember, okay, God is going to come back. Eternity is real. I'm supposed to live for more than just here and now. So I've got four ideas, four kind of practical things we can do to stay focused on God and to remember that he's in control, he's going to come back, he has a plan. So the first idea is this, read and pray daily. Number one, it's a daily practice, read and pray daily. Yesterday, Allie, my wife and I, we celebrated our sixth year of marriage. And in the last six years, we've learned a lot. And one of the things that we've learned is marriage is a lot of work. And the work of marriage is not just, you know, making sure that everybody's got a clean diaper on and the kids are fed and the bills are paid. The, the real hard work of marriage is in our relationship, like keeping our relationship healthy and strong and keeping an interest in one another. And I remember when, when we first got married and we got some advice and somebody said, you know, you actually need to schedule time regularly just to talk and interact. And we heard that and we were like, please, like, not our relationship. I mean, we're in love. We like each other. We want to spend all our free time together. Like, we don't need to daily be like, hey, have we had a conversation today? I mean, it's just going to naturally happen is what we thought. And then what happens is what happens in most people's lives. Life got busy. We faced some challenges. We had some difficulties. We encountered more obstacles. And suddenly we got to a point where we realized we're not working very well together. We were fighting more. We had more conflict. Frustration with one another was growing. And thankfully, we had somebody give us some advice. We asked for some advice on, hey, what do we do in this situation? They said, hey, you actually need to just start communicating more. You need to be really intentional. And not just communicating to solve problems. You just need to take an interest in each other's lives. Just, hey, what's going on today? How's it going? You know, what, you know, what have you been thinking lately? What are, your, what are some of the goals? What are just basic conversation stuff? 
get really intentional about building that back into the marriage. And what we've learned is, and what we're learning, I should say, because we haven't, we haven't achieved it. I mean, we got years and years ahead of us where we got to do this. But what we're learning is if we want a strong marriage, a marriage that's really a blessing to us and our kids and people around us, we've got to work at it. And we've got to build it regularly, even daily, into the relationship. And it's the same thing in your relationship with God. And that's why I have the idea of read and pray daily. You know, God's word, the Bible, it's referred to as God's word. When you read God's word, it's his word to you. It's him speaking. Prayer is you talking to God. It's your words to God. Any relationship requires dialogue and communication. So reading his word, what he's said to you, and then praying, that's how you have a regular conversation with God. There's a verse really helps kind of capture what I want to get out of my daily time with God. It's Psalm 143.8. It says this, it says, Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. I mean, this verse to me is just a great reminder of what I hope to get out of my time with God. I mean, for me, which I know is so common for so many other people, it's easy for me to just kind of wake up and then just charge into my day and try to try to accomplish things and, you know, get a ton of stuff done. And what I, what I end up doing without even thinking about it is I, I try to get my worth and my value from something I accomplish or from how I perform or some knowledge or specialty that I have. And so what I need to be reminded of is my worth and my value doesn't come from what I do. It comes from God. It comes from what he's done for me and his love for me. So just like the verse says, it says, let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. I need to be reminded regularly, every morning, I need to be reminded that God loves me. I don't need to prove myself today. Yeah, I'm going to work hard, but I don't need to prove myself today. The other thing that it says, it says, show me the way I should go. You know, this again, for me, this is so important. Hey, I I know some things on my schedule, but I don't know exactly how to navigate the different challenges I'm going to face. God, would you give me clarity? Would you help me navigate this? Oftentimes, this verse is just, you know, I'll start off and I'll just kind of pray through this verse. And then right now, I'm working through uh, the book of Matthew. There's, there's four biographies about Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I'm in Matthew. It's one of the stories about Jesus' life. I'll read a portion, a couple verses, maybe a chapter. You know, I'll just make some notes in my Bible, stuff that stood out to me. There's, you know, maybe if there's a passage that's a little difficult to understand, I'll read another book that maybe helps shine some light on what's going on. Read, not very long. And then I'll pray. I'll pray for what I'm facing that day, my schedule. I'll pray for my wife and our kids. I'll pray for the people that I want to see become followers of Jesus. It's simple. I mean, 15, maybe 30 minutes if I've got it. You know, it doesn't have to be this big ordeal. And the thing is, is just like with a marriage, the benefit of regular daily check-ins has a cumulative effect. The benefit adds up over time. It's not just, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to spend a ton of time with God in this one sitting. No, it's the frequency and the consistency of interacting with him that then it builds up over time, and that's what has the greatest effect. Same thing with our marriage. I mean, if you want to build a strong marriage, you just, you know, date nights are important, but, you know, just checking in in the middle of the day is also really important. Hey, how did you sleep? You know, how are you feeling today? Just basic conversations through the course of as you do life. Same way with our relationship with God. So build a daily practice of just interacting and talking to God. So read and pray daily. That's one way that you can stay focused on him. Another idea is to rest weekly. Rest weekly. 
You know, the origin of our calendars and how we keep track of time is really fascinating. You know, a day marks one spin of our planet. A month is based on the location of the moon. A year means that our planet has gone another lap around the sun. But where did we come up with a week? I mean, there's nothing in creation that says that a week should be every seven days. There's no cosmic event that we can look to and say, every seven days we should start this new seven-day cycle. So where in the world did we come up with seven days? We came up with seven days because in the Bible it says that God created in six days, and then on the seventh day he rested. That's the origin of this week that we adhere to every seven days. Our week comes out of God and what he did. And actually the reason that he did this, the reason he created in six days and then rested on the seventh day, is to give us an example to follow. This is why, you know, in the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment says this. It says, remember the Sabbath day. Sabbath day is the day God rested. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The word Sabbath, it's a Hebrew word, and it means to cease or to rest. And the word holy, it does, so it's not, just saying, it's not just saying, hey, take a nap this day, but it's saying keep it holy. The word holy means set apart or different. So what it's saying is this is a day that's different from any other day because you, you rest and you recharge and you refocus on God and your relationship this day. Just one out of seven. And he says, hey, if you do this, this one day, this will impact all the other days of your week. Now, for you and me in our culture, this is really, really hard for us to do. And I saw a video interesting that I want to, sh- uh, recently that I want to show you guys. It, it kind of gives an interesting explanation of why this is so hard. So let's watch this video and check out what this guy says. This idea of bragging to people, I had an all-nighter last night. We are essentially the workaholics of the world. This is Derek. He's a self-professed workaholic, and he recently wrote about why work is making us miserable. There's a psychology behind it. He calls it workism. Workism is the idea that work is the centerpiece of our identity, the focal point of our lives, and really the organizing principle of society. A lot of people have essentially turned to work to find the very things that they used to seek from traditional religions. Transcendence, meaning, community, self-actualization, a totalizing purpose in life. And so I think that in many ways we have essentially made our work our God. That's a really fascinating insight. I mean, we've made our work our God. He's not even saying, hey, we just have so much to do that we have to plug in for seven days. He's saying the reason we plug in for seven days is because this is where we get our worth and our value and our significance and our meaning. We plug in for seven days because we're bowing down to this thing. You know, so when you take one day a week, just one day, to rest and unplug, what you're saying is work's important. I'm going to put in the hours, and I'm going to, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be diligent for six days. It's important, but I worship God. So I can just take one day, and I can unplug, and I can refocus. That's what you're saying physically with your actions. You're reminding your heart of this when you choose to do this. You know, the way this was explained to me to help me kind of see the importance of this is, is a Sabbath or a rest day is you saying with your actions that when I rely on God 
God can accomplish more through my six days of relying on him than I can accomplish seven days on my own. Kind of a visual, it looks like this. Me plus six days plus God, that's greater than me plus seven days. I'm not saying six days of laziness. I'm saying, hey, put in the work. Put in the time. Work is good. It's not bad. But don't worship it. Don't bow down to it. Don't make it your God. You know, God gave us this rest day because he, he cares about us. He loves us. He doesn't want us to spend our life on something that we'll get to the end of our life and look back on and say, yeah, yeah, I, I gave my life to the wrong thing. And a weekly day to rest is an opportunity for you to kind of get your heart to rise above what's going on around you and remember, okay, there's more to this. I need to focus on God. I need to remember him. So just take one day and rest. It's a weekly practice. Idea number three. So the first one is read and pray daily, rest weekly. Idea number three is limit your consuming. Now, is there anything wrong with consuming? No. We are by nature consumers. If you don't consume water and food, you're going to die. I mean, we, we need to consume. But something that's interesting about us in our culture is we have made over-consuming an expected part of life. We've made over-consuming normal and assumed. I mean, it's like if you don't over-consume, you're kind of weird in our culture. And I saw in November there was a report that said that American household debt is now at $14 trillion. $14 trillion. If you wrote the check, it would be 14 followed by 12 zeros. That's a ton of money. Now, that's one of those stats that we look at and we're like, man, that's crazy, you know? And then we maybe start to think, depending on how much debt we have, well, mine's not that bad because it's not $14 trillion. But another stat I saw... It's not just the debt we carry. This one, this one really caught my attention. It said that the average person spends $450 a month on impulse buying, which adds up to $5,400 a year. Now, an impulse buy is a purchase that you previously didn't want, you didn't think you needed, you might not have even been aware of, and after you bought it, later that week, you don't know where the money went. That's what an impulse buy is. It's just, it's stuff that, we don't need, we didn't really want to begin with, and then we spend our money on it, and then we're looking back going, where in the world did the money go? $5,000. I mean, I don't know about you, but it'd be nice to come to the, air, the end of the year and just be like, oh, wow, we've got an extra $5,000 laying around. I mean, imagine what we could do to our debt if we took that money that we're just spending on impulse buys. I'm not talking about canceling Netflix. Just <laughs> impulse buys. Like, just imagine if you just took that money and applied it to debt, what we could do. You know, in the, in the report I read this in, it, it showed a graphic of where we spend this money. And it, it made sense to me, you know, that groceries would be the number one place that we spend it. Because I'll be honest, when, when I go to the grocery store and do the shopping, I always go over budget. Because I'm just like walking down the aisle and I'm like, oh, jalapenos, we, ha- we haven't had those in a while. And just throw those in the bag. And, you know, I've got the menu for the week and all the items that we're supposed to get. And it's like, you know, well, sausage isn't on the list, but man, it sounds, it it would be really good to have some sausage with breakfast this week. Just get that, you know, throw it in the bag, you know, and just, you know, I come home and it's like, what in the world did you spend? And it's impulse buys. We didn't need it. It's not planned for us to eat, but it's just, hey, you know, looks good in the moment. $5,000 is what it adds up to over here. That's a lot of money. I mean, we, we, we're, we're a people that is defined by our over-consuming. 1 Timothy 6 says this, Paul wrote, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. 
Now, that's one of those verses that you read, and you're like, ah, oh, that's good for him. You know, it's, it's nice, you know, and it's, oh, it would be nice if it was like, but we all know that's not how it works, right? I mean, contentment with food and clothing, it depends on where the food's from and what kind of clothing it is, first of all. But then we're going to add to the list. I mean, yeah, food and clothing, it's got to be the right food and clothing, but then, I mean, you know, we need, you know, we need the new iPhone, and we need a fast computer, and we need the super fast internet, and we need you know, the Disneyland annual pass, and we need the boat, and we need the new surfboard, and, you know, the kids need to be involved in the right activities, and our list just goes on and on and on and on. It's, you know, contentment with our basic needs being met. Yeah, right, we're Americans. We know better. But the verse says, it says that, it says godliness and contentment is great gain. Godliness is taking God seriously. Godliness is God says to do it, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm, my, my life is a God-referenced life. I get my direction from him. That's what godliness is. Contentment is, I'm satisfied with my basic needs being met. Food and clothing, I'm content. It says, if you can figure those two out, taking God seriously and contentment, it says that's great gain. Another way of saying that is, if you can figure those two things out, you're living the good life. You know, but for us, our over-consuming points to the fact that we, we think that great gain is found in something else. We actually think that great gain, the good life, is found in something that won't last beyond our time here. You know, in the middle of the passage, it says, we brought nothing, we can take nothing. But our over-consuming points to the fact that we really believe we can add something. So we're trying really hard. And in a lot of cases, we're killing ourselves doing it. You know, could it be that you're missing out on great gain because what you think is adding to your life is actually taken away from it? Could it be that your attempts to fill yourself with overconsuming is actually having the opposite and negative effect? So what would it look like to limit your consuming? Well, if you're going to limit anything, you have to put limits on it. It's got to have boundaries. And you start by limiting your overconsuming by limiting your spending. And the best way to limit your spending is a budget. Let's face it, budgets are not fun, and they involve spreadsheets. And how could anything that involves a spreadsheet be a helpful practice? But it is, and surprisingly, it, it helps our hearts. It helps our hearts live within the boundaries that God set, and the boundaries are our income. Whatever the income is he's provided us with, that's the boundaries. So budget is us saying, okay, within that, okay, I'm going to start. I'm, this is the amount I'm going to give. This is the amount I'm going to spend on basic necessities. This is what I have left over. And if it's not within my income, you know, I'm not going to spend it on these discretionary items. That's the starting point. It's a, it's a monthly practice that helps our hearts not chase after something else that won't ever fill us, but it helps us start to learn contentment so that then our hearts can focus on God. Another idea is to challenge your giving. You know, something that surprises a lot of people is that giving is a dominant theme in the Bible. You know, if you study it, it's shocking and a little uncomfortable how much God talks about giving and generosity. And as you explore what he says, what you realize is he's not saying it because he wants or need, needs our money. He doesn't need our money. I mean, he created this place. Why would he need our money if he can create an earth like this? He doesn't need our money. He says it for our benefit. So he says, hey, you, you want to build a practice and a habit into your life where you're a person that's generous, 
You know, not just kind of a, a one-time-a-year philanthropic effort, but this is, this is a routine thing. Just like, hey, if your budget's monthly, I would say make your giving monthly. It's a way to focus your heart on what matters. He, and he says the, the benefits of giving, there's kind of two main benefits of giving for us, for you and me. The first one is giving protects our hearts. So what Jesus says in Matthew 6, he says, no one can serve two masters, and you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. That's really interesting if you think about what he just said. He's saying, hey, God should, God should be the one that he, he, he leads you. He tells you where to go. He's the one that you follow. But then he puts money on par with God, saying that, but you know what? We often give money control, and we let it tell us where to go and how to spend our time and what to live for. He says, you know, oftentimes we think we're in control of our money, but actually our money's in control of us. So one of the things that giving does and generosity and building this habit into your life is it, it prevents you from serving and following money. That's protection for you and your heart. So you don't get to the end and realize, ah, I followed something that led me away from God instead of to God. Another benefit is giving invites God's blessing. Jesus is quoted in Acts 20. He says this. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, sometimes people present it as, you know, God is an investment fund with a really good rate of return. You know, kind of like, man, you put, you put $100 in this week, and next year you're going to get $1,000 back. Kind of like, man, he's, he's got a great rate of return. And that, that's just not how it works. I mean, when it talks about, you know, it's more blessed to give than to receive, He's saying the blessing, it could come in various forms. It could be, it could be tangible. It could be intangible. It just, just this last week, I was talking to a friend, and you know, we were talking about some of the things that had happened in his life, and he shared with me about, I, I, did, not, I did not bring this up. He volunteered it, that he thought that when him and his wife got serious about giving, that his career path opened up. I wasn't like, hey, do you, you know, I wasn't trying to connect any dots for him. He volunteered that. He said, I really think that when we got serious with God, I think one of the ways he blessed us is he started to do this in our life. I also know stories about people that have been tons of intangible benefits and blessings, like, like just a sense of peace. You know, there was just this worry, and they're trying to control everything, and then they start this practice of kind of separating their hearts from the control of money. Suddenly, God's peace starts to enter into the equation. Stories of relationships that have been healed that were broken for long periods of time. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back and realize I gave something control that was leading me in the wrong direction. Because if it's leading me, then it's also leading my family. Because I've got kids and a wife. So I don't want to experience that. And I also don't want to miss out on God's blessing. Because if he promises, hey, if you do this, you'll be blessed, I don't really care what form the blessing is. I want to be the one that receives the blessing. It's for our benefit. It's not for his. But it's a, it's a regular practice you build into your life, and it helps you stay focused on God. You know, back to the story of Daniel. You know, when Daniel built this habit into his life of going into the upper room and kind of helping his heart long for this place that God ruled and doing this regularly, doing this, doing this three times a day, you know, when, when he did this and started doing this, he, he, he couldn't predict the future. I mean, he didn't know, you know, just, just a week or even days before he's thrown into the lion's den. He couldn't have said, hey, just, you know, in a couple of days, I'm going gonna, 
I'm going to be sentenced to death and thrown into this lion's den. He didn't know that that was coming. But it was those regular practices of focusing his heart on God, remembering what was important, those were the things that actually prepared him for the future that awaited him. You see, it was the, it was the practices that he did, the rhythms of his life, the patterns that only God could see that were preparing him for the future that he could not see. And it's the exact same thing for you and me. We can't see the future. And it's when we, when we do stuff like this, when we build patterns and rhythms into our life to remember what's really important and to focus on God and to prioritize him and hear from him, when we do this stuff and we kind of pull our hearts out of all the stuff going on around us, that stuff that only God can see, that prepares us for a future that we cannot see. So this is, this is just four ideas, four simple ideas. Read and pray daily, rest weekly, limit your consuming, make it, make it a part of your month. Challenge your giving, make it a part of your month, build it into your schedule. Just four simple ideas. But these can be incredibly powerful in your life. As just like Daniel, you engage in some practices that help you focus on God and remember what's really important. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that you don't want us to give our lives to something that in the end will not matter. And so over and over again, you speak to this topic and you say, as you go through your life, here's what it'll look like to focus on me. So God, I pray that we really would do that. And I pray that we would experience the blessings. I pray we would not get our, our worth and our value from our accomplishments or our work. I pray that we would not give control of ourselves to anything other than you. But I pray that we would realize that as we engage in regular practices, it's an opportunity for our hearts to remember what's really important. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.